Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness as the term pertains to conversations around race and racism and to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest or two who offer unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by the hosts of It's a Continent, a podcast which will also be published as a book in July 2022 and which takes each African nation and retells a key moment in the country's history. From Mugabe's freedom fighting to Angola's Queen Nzinga and her efforts resisting Portuguese invasion for over 30 years. Chini Yukata and Astrid Madimba's book looks at the role that colonialism has played on the continent, but also beyond that to discuss key figures in each nation's history. The podcast was recognized as the 25th most popular history podcast in 2020 and has been mentioned in The Guardian, BBC Radio and Pod Bible. Astrid was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo and grew up in the UK. She studied at the University of Exeter and is a marketing professional by day. Chinni is British Nigerian and studied at the University of Southampton. Her previous work has featured in publications including Gaudem and Black Ballad. It's a Continent is both Astrid and Chinni's first book baby. Welcome ladies to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you I so much. Book We're baby. excited. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Any day now. Book yeah. baby, book baby. Well, look, I guess the first question I wanted to ask you both was about the uh, little precursor to book baby, a little bit about yourselves, your personal background. You know, how did book baby and the podcast, I guess, come about? I'm guessing there may be something about both of you are of African heritage. You grew up in London or one of you grew up in South End on Sea. You know, you grew up in the UK what was it about those experiences that made you want to tell this story both in podcast and book form now? I think to, to begin with, it was really about our lack of understanding and knowledge of our, of where we came from really. So as you said, you know, I was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I moved to the UK, Devon, um, when I was seven. So very much, you know, it was, challenging in terms of finding people who looked like me who could share stories about my history and very much especially when you're looking at the curriculum in the UK you know it focused on particular areas and sometimes you know my identity and like was very much erased there wasn't I wasn't aware of kind of black people's involvement in the world wars and for me it was about reconnecting to that and really learning um, and I think that's what we we did with the podcast really we were like we really need to learn more about ourselves and when you're thinking about having children in the future. I have no clue about my history. What can I share? So for me, that was a, st a starting point really. Um, yeah. Yeah and, yeah, and for me, um, even though I did grow up in the UK, um, I did very similar to Astrid also feel that there wasn't really much around black history being shared. I think the closest we got to African history was ancient Egypt. I think that just just a year four session um, on ancient Egypt. But talking to uh, my dad around, for example, when he told me about the Biafra War, which happened in Nigeria in the late 60s, 
um, and realising that actually Britain was heavily involved in this conflict, but why am I only hearing this from family? Why is no one else talking about this? Um, and it was really understanding and realising those relationships that uh, you know, Britain and other European countries actually have within other African countries and digging deep and realising how, how entrenched um, <laughs> that history goes, um, really. And, and what kind of impact has learning about those different uh, stories, those different facets of African history, some obviously much closer to home than others, but how has that impacted you, your sense of self, your sense of identity? Just an immense, a greater understanding of the African continent and sort of the challenges and also an appreciation that a lot of these countries, you know, gained independence not that long ago and so it's pretty understandable why some of them continue to face challenges in terms of kind mm. of development but also an appreciation so for me with the book I've always um, tried to make sure that we represented women because I think you know history in general tends to kind of ignore the role of women and so for me it was just discovering more about African women and I just feel like it's so I have a niece now but um it's so nice to be able to say these are kind of African women you can also look at. Do you know what I mean? Because I do think, you know, it gets, we do get lost in history, but then when you look at it from kind of an African perspective, a black perspective, it gets lost even more. So for me, it's that, it's I could definitely have so much more knowledge and, and, I, and I love that, I love that. Yeah, and very similar. I mean, the only sort of black history that we heard around was African-American, which, of course, they are the dominant sort of cultural force within within the black diaspora, really. But um, it's really highlighting the stories that Africa actually has to share because there's just such a wealth of history and so many different people profiles that we've covered and that deserve to be looked at um, in the same level of depth as, as European history, for example. And, and did you feel at all that, you know, so I think a lot of the time when we talk about British history, and I think it's become even more um, sort of uh, centred around the UK history in a much more narrow sense in recent years, but that Britain having been an empire historically, and obviously the result of that is Britain as we know it today, that, you know, there's a reason Britain looks the way it does. And, you know, it's not all down to this sort of weird idea of immigration disconnected from, from empire. Mm. Um, but did you have any sense through the research that you were doing that actually African history is now British history, that actually when we don't learn about African history, we're also missing a part of our own narrative as a nation? Yeah, 100 percent, because it still comes as a surprise when we actually realise the depths of the things that the British Empire did um, in, in an effort to subjugate Africans. And it also helps to understand why the continent is in its current position, um, because, it, you know, Africa as a continent didn't just wake up underdeveloped. Like this, this happened through hundreds of years of uh, exploitation. Um, so it's really understanding that. And then it helps to make sense around the whole immigration conversation, because if Britain, uh, if people, more people knew about the extent to which colonisation really kind of ravaged the continent and other continents around the world, actually, then they would then understand why there is a lot of immigration as a consequence because of the underdevelopment, etc. And that actually there is a right for these people to come to the UK, seeing as the UK wouldn't be in this developed position if not for the chronic underdevelopment of, of the African continent and other nations. 
And I think it's how Britain also wants to present itself, right? As mm. more of a saviour, a hero that kind of goes in. And But actually, that is a result of having, as Chingy said, exploiting another continent. And so, yeah, the immigration we're talking about, I can go yeah, on we... about it forever. But I do think there's that element in terms of actually providing the reality, you know, because of Britain doing X and Y, this is why our nations within the continent are facing certain challenges. And, you know, that is just an important part to highlight because it's so entrenched between, yeah, both of the histories of those countries, uh, of those, of the continent, but also within Britain as well. And I'd say oh. another thing, oh, sorry. <laughs> Go on, please. Say another thing as well is around that like, British image and, you know, the whole like two world wars, one world cup, like there's this obsession with the contribution of Britain's efforts in the world wars, but actually a lot of Britain's sort of um, forces re- relied on a lot of the work of African soldiers um, and Caribbean soldiers too. And that's like, just a footnote. It's not even mentioned. Um, so actually the history should be more complete in its retelling. And, and what's your sense of whether that, how you know, what would be the impact, do you think, if the version of history that was being taught, say, in schools, you know, recognise that actually if we're going to talk about British history, we have to talk about African history and the role that Britain has played within that, not only because obviously there are British Africans today and therefore, you know, this is part of British history, but also because it is literally part of the, uh, it's the other side of the imperial story that we haven't really connected with as a nation, right? What, do you have a sense of what change or impact that might have if, if we were learning more of it? I'd like to think for me, maybe because I'm forever an optimist, is just, you know, with what we're seeing in terms of immigration and the stories around, like, how we view, you know, people who are coming to the UK from countries and facing so much hardship and, you know, to come here, then I think it's a better understanding of, like, why that is. And for me, I hope people would be much more open to it because actually one of the reasons why Britain has been so successful because it has been exploiting and I hope that people then are much more understanding of the situations as I said a lot of these countries have just become you know have only become independent for you know less than 100 years and so I hope it makes people have a better understanding of the why because the why isn't just someone who's decided you know what fancy moving to the UK today and just apparently the rhetoric is fancy moving to the UK want to stay on its benefits and you know that is that is not it that is the newspaper selling you that story I think it's about understanding what the why and why does that country and nation find itself in massive kind of poverty and underdevelopment and that goes back to history and actually understanding the roles which country like Britain played within that um you know destroying hundreds of thousands of people if we look at for example Belgium in the Congo uh, under King Leopold killed 10 million Congolese people you know like that for me is you need to be open about that those are the reasons then you see people coming because well you've destroyed my continent no one my mom always says this no one chooses to leave their country of birth to move somewhere else no one chooses that because you end up being you know a minority within that nation you lose a sense of identity, you're completely different. And definitely when I think about myself, the person I am today is very different to who I would have been 
and my life experience was I have grown up to the in the DRC and so that is an element that you that I personally co- constantly live with that I'm a very different person to who I was, should have been as a Congolese woman and so I have to that is something I take on and will take on moving forward and that will also impact my children and so mm. that for me is yeah sorry <laughs> this, no. this side always gets me a little bit uh, but uh, yeah no no and, and 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 you know you mentioned the Congo and uh last time I was in Brussels which to be fair was a few years ago they had a large statue of uh, King Leopold in the center of of Brussels which you know I think is regularly defaced by the way just you know yeah. that's um, good yeah, so there's some definitely some resistance on the ground to it, but but yeah, so shocking in light of kind of you know how many people, if they really knew what King Leopold had you know ruled over, would still want to have that statue there. And I guess how much of the conversations we have around statues and emblematic figures or road names would be different conversations if people really knew the pain and suffering attached to those figures. I mean, I guess it's a question. Some people might say, well they might still see some pride in it. I don't know. But um, it's, uh, it, it's a very real question. I wanted to ask you about the the stories that you've uncovered. Uh, what were, you know, we can't go, unfortunately, through the whole uh, history of the African continent. But if you would, would love to share maybe one or two stories that you uncovered that were particularly kind of shocking or um, enlightening or that, that shed a light maybe on something contemporary, which we might be able to take away. Just a little snippet for people. Oh, there's loads to choose from. <laughs> um, I guess um, an interesting example um, if we think around like Britain's legacy, um, we could be looking at the Chagos Islands, which um, we covered on our podcast as well, but we felt that its relevance and because it is an ongoing situation needed to also be addressed in the book. Um, so this is really as a result of incomplete uh, decolonization that happened in the Mauritius. And as a consequence, what happened was that Britain sold sold the Chagos Islands to the US so that the US could build an airbase. And Chagos Islands are just off the coast of the African continent as well. Um, and yeah, people were really forced to, uh, to leave their homes. So it was the Chagossian expulsion. This happened around the late 60s, early 70s. And when people didn't want to leave, um, colonial forces actually ended up um, murdering their dogs, their pets, so that the people then had to be forced to leave. And it's really shocking. They were put in dire conditions. Although we say the Seychelles, Mauritius, sounds like a holiday but actually these people were kept in terrible conditions and shacks and many people died of broken hearts um people were having to turn to like drugs um because they you know there was no way of getting any work there was a lot of depression within that community um and i think as a pittance britain did offer a few people visas to come over so there is a chagossian community within the uk but they are still fighting to get access back to their land because unfortunately um i think it's called like a there's like a special power that was used uh, during the Blair government that meant that actually the Chagossians would, would never return back home. Um, and we go into more detail with it in the book, but um, it's an ongoing case because the UN has ruled it unlawful that Britain still has lays claims to the Chagossian islands. Uh, and it's an ongoing situation that's still quite sort of buried in regards to the news stories. Um, mm. Yeah, and for something that's quite contemporary and that is ongoing, um, it's quite shocking that it's been allowed to happen. 
That's such an interesting story that, yeah, I actually had never heard of before. And when I hear about it, it reminds me of the legacy of uh, Britain's rule in Palestine, in Mandate Palestine. (laughs) And the, uh, you know, the handing over of Palestinian land to, uh, you know, Zionists and the establishment of a whole new state as if that was Britain's land to give to anyone. Um, So, wow. Yeah, that's that's. And so that's an ongoing situation, an ongoing case that's being fought, I guess, um, by the the local populations to try and reclaim their land. Is that is that right? Yes, correct. Yes. Yeah. And it's just the fact that for me, it's just the audacity. It's been ruled as unlawful by kind of the highest courts that we have. And still Britain is not. I just find that in 2022, how can you still have a colony? For me, it, it is, let's call it what it is. Do you know what I mean? How yeah. How is that still possible? And we say that all these nations, they're free and, you know, Chagossians would love to go back to the islands, but they can't. So it's just, for me, I, yeah, it's shocking that these still things still, still exist. And what did the book tell you, or what did you learn maybe about the nature of colonialism? Because when I was reading um, sections of the book around different parts of Africa, I was thinking, you know, that that there is an argument made by some contemporary um, academics that, you know, colonialism never really stopped. There was a mutation of the forms in which imperialism operates that granted degrees of um, sovereignty to uh, leaders that would continue to uh, entertain the structures that would permit the continued exploitation of domestic populations or uh, domestic forms of wealth um, that would continue to benefit external, as in non-Africans, uh, powers. So so what did you, you know, a lot of people say, well, colonialism is the past. And I mean, there's virtue in learning about the past. But was there anything about the form in which colonialism existed and exists today that you have a particular insight on after doing that research? I think it's just seeing, as you said, like it's evolution, because you had then these leaders come in and they you know, I think a lot of them, you have these freedom fighters, fought for independence, come in, get, I think power just went to their heads, to be honest. (laughs) You know, you've got access to all of this and they just decided to keep it for as long as possible. And so you just end up in a situation whereby also it hasn't, definitely has not helped the nations. And I do think particularly um, countries like France maintained, struggled to let go, maintained really close ties with African nations that you know that they had colonized post-colonization and stuff to make sure that you know there were still bargains to be done and things like that and I think that enabled I feel like in a sense there was no for these leaders there was no structure of okay now that we're free what does that look like because if you think about it they were under these powers for so long and so what does setting up a system that is true to us and our environment look like there is no guidebook and so in a sense I'm trying not to understand why they copied it but I it's in a, to, an, to a certain degree I can understand why then in, for some leaders they chose okay we'll stick with the colonizer to a certain point to make sure that we we have an understanding of what that template looks like do you know what I mean it's much easier to copy than try and set up something completely new but that being said you did have attempts at 
new ways of thinking when you think about kind of the pan-African movement you had the likes of uh, Julius Nyerere in Tanzania so there were elements there but I do think it was much easier to just take what had been pre-established and then utilize that and keep it going. Yeah and especially those African leaders who did actually try and chart like a third way like Thomas Sankara, um, Patrice Lumumba unfortunately were murdered by like European interests um, Prince Ragasore, for example, Burundi. So it, there was also a danger of if someone didn't want to be a, a colonial puppet, then they would be murdered for their beliefs. And that's not really talked about or, or mentioned. Um, and another aspect of neocolonialism is also how we've seen a shift from um, countries exploiting to private companies exploiting for natural resources. So um, for example, we, we think about oil um, in the Niger Delta and how um, it's brought quite a lot of untold suffering to those living around the Niger Delta in the form of pollution, um, ruining traditional practices, for example, um, poor health outcomes because of the levels of pollution in the area. And also looking at other another place in West Africa, so within Ghana, for example, and the coca trade and how um, children are chopping down coca, eight-year-olds with machetes, working long hours. It's just really, um, it's it's just taking another form in that sense. Mm. It's also interesting to me the extent to which we, we still think of colonialism as purely a state enterprise, but actually British imperialism began as the imperial exercise of a private company, right? Yes. The East India Company, which, mm. you know, obviously then gets appropriated or merges, if you like, with state interests. But, um, uh, you know, similarly, if you look at the Middle East, you know, it was American petroleum companies that are first going out and kind of digging for those first, you know, signs of oil. But we tend to now think of colonialism as something that was, you know, a state practice. And so private companies, well, that's just fair game, isn't it? That's just capitalism. And, you know, capitalism is sort of the semi-accepted uh, uh, economic model of, of the world. Were there any insights you learned about that overlap that comes up so much in the podcast, you know, between colonialism and, and capitalism and modern forms of imperialism? Yeah, they all kind of triangulate in a sense, because linking back to France, they still control much of West African currency as it's underpinned by the franc and things that, well, was underpinned by the franc. Um, and you also have bodies like the IMF, which put on like layers of structural barriers so that people within African countries, their, their currency is devalued. So I guess it's through different forms that we see different bodies, but then acting against the interests of those African countries mm. and making it very difficult for them to, because of the lower economic power that they have, to really contest. Mm. Um, and you, you spoke about the underdevelopment of Africa. I know there's a whole book that dedicated to, I think it's got exactly that title, isn't it? The I forget the author, the, the how, how... Yes, how, how Europe underdeveloped. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How Europe underdeveloped Africa, which should be on everybody's reading list. But... Um, uh, when you were looking at, uh, you know, the, the, the stories of the, the, the histories, and obviously you had to select particular uh, parts of the history, that was one of my questions reading it, was how did you decide which parts of history to focus in on? Because obviously, you know, these are extensive histories, you could, could have picked anything really, right? 
I think for us, especially both in the podcast and the book, we never claim to provide all of the information. I think it's very much a starting point for someone who's just like, right, there's a whole continent out there that I have no idea about, no idea where to begin. And maybe just taking one of these, one or two of these stories might resonate with you and just say, actually, let me dig a little deeper. And I think it's, that's how we try to select stories that wouldn't kind of shine a light on particular moments, both, I think, especially we try to push around kind of pre- colonial history as well just to show what that was like and and then also colonization but also after that so I think for us it was all about selecting kind of moments in history that would drive conversation but also encourage someone to then dig even deeper because there is a lot of history out there to focus on and it was I think that's what the theme we try to maintain throughout. Yeah, we wanted a good representation of different themes. So we didn't want everything to be about an independence story, for example. But then we also wanted to look at, say, pre-colonial examples, again, African women, um, African leaders and why they sort of descended into autocracy in some instances. But then also looking at, for example, when we chose the South Africa topic. We know that most people know about Nelson Mandela, but we thought that Steve Biko could be another profile that we could cover as he's perhaps less alone. So I didn't really know anything about Steve Biko until I was um, in Ghana like about 10 years ago. Um, and there was a South African um, girl there and she was telling me about it. I was like, how have I never heard about Steve Biko? I'm like still in university, but you'd expect him to have heard it something about um, another anti-apartheid uh, hero at the time. So yeah, just bringing slightly different angles on each country and so for people who might not have heard of him can you give us a little snippet what why why should we all know about him yes yeah, so he was behind the black consciousness movement um within south africa and um unfortunately the south african government kind of like made him a banned person so it meant that he couldn't really do any speeches or anything like that they basically the government at the time just put a halt to anybody anyone who opposed apartheid um, so his teachings around the whole, like, um, emphasising the whole Black is Beautiful movement at the time within South Africa, so really empowering um, Black people in South Africa, which was his movement around just empowering somebody to believe that they could affect change, because obviously through the years, Black people within South Africa have been told that they're just you know, nothing. Um, but unfortunately, his story was really tragic because um, he had been sort of a victim of police brutality, um, he had unfortunately suffered bleeds to the brain due to um, harsh police action. And instead of transporting him to treatment, they decided to drive him for hundreds of miles um, in his condition, shackled and with, with uh, bleeds to the brain, which led to his um, which led to his death. Um, but it's just so shocking that they were that the level of police brutality that we see um, within his story. Mm. And, and and tell me about um, these independent the, these figures of, of African liberation, which you know obviously they, uh, some of them come in the context of sort of the the, the post colonial or the the, the anti colonial struggle, um, and there's a lot of hope around kind of what these figures might achieve. Um, what was your sense of the relationship between the outcomes of those struggles and European interventions or imperial interventions in the region? How much do you still connect those um, the the and I don't want to call it the failure of those struggles because I think that's too strong a word. I mean, you tell me what you think, but I think you know 
maybe that those struggles didn't necessarily lead to what the figures had hoped they might at the inception. What went wrong? I think with some of the failures, I think um, Chini alluded to it, is, you know, you still had European influence and, you know, Patrice Lumumba got murdered. Like, it was just, they were still there. It wasn't sort of, right, you're now independent, this is your nation, off you go. It was still elements of involvement. And I think, I can't imagine, you know, if you've had someone who's been fighting for your freedom and then, you know, a couple of months later, they're, they're murdered. I just think it just creates chaos. And I just think it became a sort of ripple effect that people just sort of was like, well, it's not, it's, it's just added added to the chaos really. And I don't, th- I definitely agree with you. I don't think um, it is a failure. I think a lot of these um kind of um, independence kind of fighters and stuff were really pushing to change the narrative and really wanting to free themselves. But I don't think it was helped by how um, the colonizers really still stuck around. I don't think that helped um, them to kind of come out of it. Do you make any connection with, you know, someone like Gaddafi who, you know, and this is uh, no rehabilitation of the figure of Gaddafi who has lots to answer for, but, you know, somebody who also tried to create, you know, a United Nations of Africa and had visions of, albeit albeit contested visions uh, for all sorts of reasons, uh, of leading this United uh, States of Africa. do do you feel that um, there is any, uh, you know, when you look at kind of current leadership across the continent, are there any, uh, is there any hope of a, of new figures emerging uh, whether, you know, I mean, Thomas Sankara and, and others are sort of almost idealized to the point of sainthood, I feel today. And, and, and sometimes you forget that none of those struggles were as clean uh, as maybe the reimagined version of them and so is it difficult to see someone emerge today because we expect them to almost have this sainthood vision like we do with the Martin Luther Kings and you know to some extent still the Malcolm X's I think that the movement have kind of evolved to be perhaps more led by community and through social media um, so Farida Nebarema is um, an activist in Togo who's been campaigning against the Nasimbe dynasty within her country. And she's gained a lot of um, traction. Her movement has gained traction through the use of social media. So I think just with the evolution of technology, we're not just reliant on one person to, to lead the child. It's, it's actually more community led. And um, we also saw the same within the NSARS activism that we saw in Nigeria, um, the Congo is bleeding hashtag and the Red Pearl movement in Uganda. And there's a lot of people out there that are leading the charge. We, we may not necessarily know all their names, but I'd say that it's more of a community that's that's driven um, against the movement. And I guess to an extent, we sort of saw an earlier form of this with the Arab Spring, because that, that was very much social media driven. But um, I think that the continent is now starting to see a new form of activism um, through social media. Well, and we hope um, that, that Africa will have a, a better outcome than the Arab Spring. Um, yes. Because obviously, you know, um, it, for anyone who follows the Middle East, the series of uprisings that get called the Arab Spring did not uh, mm. in any country so far bring about 
uh, I think anything other than a worsening of the conditions and and almost like a punitively worsening of the conditions. And that's just my personal uh, opinion on the matter. But it's almost a a case of, you know, uh, if you if you wouldn't tolerate the conditions before, which were terrible. Well, let's show you just how bad it can actually be under the strictest forms of military rule and um you know Egypt being a very clear example of that um what we're seeing obviously in the continued civil war in Syria being another another variant um l- let me ask you about the uh common misconceptions that you come across around Africa what are some of the the the, the view you know obviously i i presume the title has a slight play on you know the, con- the country <laughs> of Africa, which we still hear, right, in 2022. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I presume there's a play on that. But but what are some of the common misconceptions that you've had to deal with and that you've therefore tried to address, if at all, in, in the book? Definitely that it's a country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> people just thinking you were just living with just lines and just stepping out. Like, honestly, that would drive, would just drive me mad that I don't know if they thought you were like, the line in the Lion King or something and just living in a hut but I think it's just some of those elements just stick in people's minds and stuff and I'm like how what how are you but yeah there's a lot of yeah it reminds me of when you see an article and they will say went to, visited Africa and you're just like where, yeah. where? it's a big place <laughs> it's like whereabouts not even the region don't you not even say like western or <laughs> yeah one of the biggest places, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine I visited Europe. Yeah. yeah. You would you never, never see a headline never like that. that. You would never see yeah. that just even in a movie or something. Or they would say, "Oh yes, France, Italy, and Africa." And you yeah. think, yeah. And you're "No, like... where? Where in Africa?" Like we, it's just very common to see um, within the media. So. So like a big a, a big flattening, and I, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Do, what do you what do you put down to being the reason that we have such a flattening view of Africa in Europe? A, a lot of the time, obviously not everyone, but you know uh, a lot of people do sort of have a bit of a blind spot when it when it comes to the African continent. Um, I've definitely seen. Uh, you know, uh, social media videos where people have been asked, you know, can you place any of these countries on on a map? Of, of And most people could never pl- accurately place, uh, you know, most African countries. So what do you put down to the fact that we have this blind spot here in Europe when it comes to Africa, despite sort of how closely intertwined the histories have been? Oh, is is yeah, Chinny still there. with us? Uh, I think Chinny has slightly frozen, so I will let um, Astrid pick that yeah, up and no. hopefully, <laughs> hopefully Chinny can, can join us in a sec. I think for me, I think that blind spot comes from the fact that it's not embedded in what we're taught in school in history. I think obviously, especially in the UK, we very much rely on education to be the source of you'll get schooled, you'll know absolutely everything you'll need to know to kind of set you up and go off. And because there is that gap, I do think, and I don't think people, not everybody, but just actively does the research, because I do think because it's not covered, you have to do the work. And that's what, mm-hmm. you know, really brought about the podcast with Chini and I, but I think it's that element, because we don't have, that gap is missing. You sort of then rely on, you know, new, 
That, yeah, I'll, I'll bring Chinny back in. Don't worry. Because <laughs> uh, um, he'd gone as well. Oh, no. Um, yeah, so I think because we do have that gap, it then yeah. leads to people relying on kind of the media and what they see on television to be able to fill that in. And it takes kind of picking up books, watching documentaries to do that. But then I think sometimes there's a lot out there when it comes to African history. Where do you start? And so I do think tackling that element within the curriculum and providing a much more represented and well-rounded view of the history and specifically uh, British history will really help to tackle those views um as well have you had any pick up from schools at all on that so with the podcast it's been really nice in terms of just like the different people who found us and how they utilize us so mm. we've had a um teacher in the uk reach out to us kind of saying when she covers world war ii she now also covers kind of takes elements that we've covered in the um podcast around kind of africans involvement in World War II and embedding that within her teachings as well and so that's been nice to see that people are embedding and I think at the moment it's not you know a requirement within the curriculum but I definitely encourage people you know if you are teaching and have that flexibility to include it embed it because it prevents it from just being a footnote or even just completely being dismissed so it's about making that conscious effort um, especially because we're in such a diverse country that <laughs> the element that we're missing is actually representing that diversity in the history that we teach young people. Mm. Well, um, just a side note for everyone that we seem to have lost um, Chinny, unfortunately. Um, I, I will continue to try and bring her back into the conversation, but um, I think maybe her uh, Wi-Fi may have dropped. Um so in the meantime, can I ask you about the uh, the women? You talk about the forgotten African feminist icons in the book. Um, can you share a little bit with us about some of these iconic women and what their legacy, which is currently missing in much of the mainstream discourse on feminism, could contribute to helping us see that we maybe currently don't? Yeah, I think one of the women we covered is Doria Shafiq in Egypt. I had never come across her name, her story at all. And basically, she was really key. So within that time, um, you know, it was a very, Egypt at the time was a very patriarchal society. And she was really kind of trying to revolutionize that and change that. So they were sort of slightly free, but not free. They were under Britain. And mm -hmm. her role was about really like being the voice of women and being able to deliver change for them so that they could get the vote, that education, that they had a stronger kind of footing within education. And she created a magazine to really share that, be that voice for women. And within the group that um, she created the Bintal Nil um, Union. And within that, they had their own strand of like army that supported um, Egypt and I think her story is just wonderful to show that there were these women who were fighting and were actually pushing to drive change and alongside the men. I think that was really nice. Yeah, I think I've, I love kind of discovering her story. You then have Wangari Maathai in um, Kenya. Who, yeah. You know, today, the environment and just making sure that when we treat it well, so that we're still kind of stuck around. And I think realizing that she was talking about this and tree planting way back when was amazing and so for me it's kind of showing that 
a lot of the stuff that we kind of count as being you know modern thoughts and modern ideas we Africans have had that and have been embedding that and really drive and being a driving force in those areas and I think it's been really nice to reflect and being able to share their stories through this book. Uh, Chinny, welcome back. We were just talking about, um, sorry about that little uh, dip in, in the Wi-Fi, I assume. We were just talking about some of the, the forgotten uh, fig figures of African feminism and the extent to which their contributions can help us understand, see things that perhaps we are, are missing from the current mainstream conversations around feminism. And um, Astrid was giving us uh, some examples, but I, maybe there's, uh, is there a particular figure that stood out for you um, in, in your research that you sort of thought, wow, well, you know, there are all these debates on X, Y, and Z, and how is this particular person's name never part of that conversation? Yeah, so um, an example that I found was linked to a collective women's movement. So the March in Grand Bassam, which was in Cote d'Ivoire. Mm. Uh, and this was really around women that were protesting against the uh, repressive colonial government and the way in which, um, you know, very punitive measures where we saw imprisonment take place of anyone who stood up to colonial forces in really dire conditions. Um, so these women um, organised themselves um, and gathered, uh, marched across uh, to Grand Bassam um, and helped to bring an end to some of the punitive measures that we saw. Um, it was really around improving the conditions and also just releasing their, you know, uh, men within the community. So perhaps their, you know, their husbands, sons, brothers, etc. So that was really um, an example of community action and coming together. Um, I think that when it comes to African history, particularly just from a UK perspective, I think the countries that don't necessarily speak English, um, the stories are quite difficult to, to find. And then even more so when it's a women's movement, for example. Um, so that was a, an example that I found. Um, interestingly as well, uh, I had to really dig quite deep to find this information. So it was a case of um, having to read like a French translated uh, version of the material um, as it wasn't in English. So yeah, it's just an example of how these these stories are quite difficult to trace. Mm, mm, just accessing the, the the original sources, I guess, as well. Um, yes, exactly. What about, um, I wanna, wanted to ask you about modern forms of, of imperialism before we, we go through to the quick fire round. And, um, you know, one of the uh, actors, which I, I didn't see mentioned is China. Uh, I've definitely heard a lot of people say, uh, you know, I've had African friends who are businesses in Africa who talk to me frequently about um, kind of the, the, the what they might perceive as kind of a neo-colonial uh, form of, of economic uh, imperialism by uh, China. Is, is, is that some is that a perspective you share or, or do you just see that as, you know, a normal economic outcome of global capitalism? It's I an interest definitely next, isn't it? I, I, for me, anyway, I do believe that China and seeing some of the deals that are currently happening between African nations and China, it's worrying to see because a lot of these countries are in huge debts and pro t taking on huge debts to support their development. But the consequences of that and what that looks like in 5, 10, 20 years time worries me. Mm. Um, but yeah. 
we we've seen that obviously with nations that have defaulted on debts to China, right? Because some of these debts involve China then having ownership over things like you know ports, external ports. So China then controlling the external ports of given countries um, has a huge impact on on trade and and. Um, so, so yeah, I was just wondering, um, Chini, did you have uh, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, it's a danger because China would be promising things like trains or, you know, infrastructure whilst they're actually taking raw resources from the continent. And because of neocolonialism, there's now there's now a gap when it comes to actually processing these raw, raw materials, which is what made what would have made many African nations um, gain more more money essentially. Mm. So because these processing uh, that the functions of the means of processing these raw materials, whatever the form, has now sort of been off is still controlled by Western interests, um, and this means that then the African countries can't really do anything with say the cobalt, for example. But then at the same time, trains are needed. So it's a deal that's been going on, but it's actually at the detriment of the nation because it will it will ultimately make the nation even poorer. Mm, and it's so interesting. It's very much the model of, you know, uh, you know, you can own the oil, but you don't own the refineries, you know. That's, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. So the example was uh, happening in the DRC. So unfortunately, that's um, that's a consequence of, of intervention from abroad. Mm. Um, so just before we go to the quick fire round, I wanted to ask you about whiteness. Obviously, the title of the podcast is we need to talk about whiteness. Do you um, recognize the term? What does the term mean to you? And do you feel that the, the you know, the, the, the podcast, the book or in any form a kind of challenge to whiteness in any way? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, whiteness sometimes equates to what people perceive as normal and anything outside of the whiteness is othered or it's different it's not like what's seen as the default and that has had consequences that we've seen throughout history really as, as a result but that's because so much of history has been through um, a white lens so yeah we want to we wanted to challenge that by really saying okay first of all africa is not a country because it seems to be the case that that's what that lens still uh, i think that's as a consequence of that lens mm. um, and then also just sharing the history and the culture that we see within each nation within the continent just to challenge that that actually we do have huge people uh, contribute contributions to society to the world um as we're talking about Wangari Maathai for example um actually Europe has a lot to learn from African countries and civilization as well it's not just the other way around mm -hmm. and unfortunately whiteness has been put as a default or what countries should be aspiring to which has actually come at the detriment of of the world and climate change and you know all of the excessive consumption that, that we see um so unfortunately that lens has actually given way to to i don't really see many benefits unfortunately no for sure and i definitely agree it's, it's become oh sorry feedback. Um, the lens that can you guys you yeah we, we can hear you fine yeah Oh, right. Sorry. Um, yeah, I definitely think it's become the lens. It's, it is the lens that is used to kind of view the world. And so you set yourself, that is the benchmark and that's what everybody views. And I definitely think, especially as Africans, we've also fallen for that lens. Sometimes I do mm -hmm. see in terms of, you know, the way 
we are in understanding our identity I do think we also utilize that lens but it's about also understanding our own kind of history and ownership because we have had a part to play in history and so for me yeah it is um it's important to kind of share these stories in order to view to change just how that lens kind of views Africa and how we utilize it yeah well, thank you both very much. Um, we're now going to just go to our quick fire round. So quick fire questions and we're expecting quick fire responses uh, to obviously very simple questions. Um, what is your definition of whiteness? <laughs> like my first thing is just like, it's how the world views it. It's just, you know, it's <laughs> like it's... Seen as a default me. is what I would yeah, say. Yeah, it's the default. That's it. The world views it, yeah. What is the root of racism? I would say the concept and the construct of whiteness. For me, it's a uh, lack of understanding, understanding of different cultures. Yeah. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? I can't, I honestly cannot see it happening um, because oh, I know this is quick fire, <laughs> but <laughs> it's okay. I feel like it benefits people by it not happening that I don't see it happening. Yeah, the problem with the whole colorblind issue is we're all the same. It means that you then don't see people for who they are. Um, and it's a failure to realize that actually different cultures are equal, but it's still so difficult for, through the lens of whiteness, especially to be able to recognize that. Mm. Um, is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes. Yes. Um, uh, fantastic. Well, look, what's next for you, ladies? Where where to from here? What's the next mountain to climb? <laughs> so we've got, yeah, the publishing day, which is on the 7th yes. of July. So it's very, very soon. And yeah, we're so excited for it to finally just be out there and if yeah. people want to purchase the book do you have a bookseller of choice of preference that you'd like to direct them to so we have our website um it's a constant.com slash book um and then yeah you'd have a look on there and see whichever retailers are available to purchase the book and of course um our podcast as well so i think that that would provide a good sort of base to then jump off off and read the book but you don't have to listen to the podcast to read the book of course the but book. Yeah. <laughs> and the podcast is what, on iTunes and... Yes, yep, all, everywhere. all the major right. platforms also by the same name. So it's a continent as well. Fantastic. All right. Well, Chinny and Astrid, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you to all of our listeners also for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do join us next time for more conversations on whiteness and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.